You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Andrea Pitts. Andrea is assistant professor of philosophy at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Their research interests include social epistemology, philosophy of race and gender, Latin American and U.S. Latinx philosophy, and critical business studies. Dr. Pitts is currently co-editing two forthcoming volumes, one on the reception of the work of Henry Bergson and decolonial thought, feminism, and critical race studies, and a volume on contemporary scholarship and U.S. Latina and Latin American feminist philosophy. In this episode, we talk indigenous forms of resistance, neoliberalism, Latinx philosophy, and so much more. Hello, Andrea, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for coming on. Let me ask this first question. How did you get interested in philosophy? So first, just thanks for having me on the show. I'm a big fan and I'm, I'm, I really appreciate what you do with the podcast. So thank you for the invitation. So how I got into philosophy. So I, I can't say that I'm somebody who was exposed to, say, philosophical writings prior to college, but I definitely think I was maybe exposed to like philosophical thinking or movement, philosophical movement during like prior to college. And so one of the kind of ways that I've reframed this question in my mind is something like during high school, like I had a, a really amazing mentor and a, um, educator, Frank T. Williams III, who was a music instructor. And I think he took it as his kind of sole mission for kids in this struggling high school to like help them graduate by learning about music. And so I was studying jazz in high school, like jazz music pretty seriously. And so do you play? Do you play at all? I did. Yeah, I played alto sax for a long time. And I, I'll, I'll say more about this in a second. But like, it was like kind of what got me to college at all. So anyways, like what I loved about jazz was like, you know, there was all of these kind of cool, like we were learning not just about like the music, but also about like these jazz giants like Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and John Coltrane, but also like the history of their lives and the issues and context that were impacting their writing and playing. And so like, for example, in high school, we were like, you know, analyzing something like Charlie, Charles Mingus's Fables of Fabus, which was a, you know, 1950s protest song about a governor in Arkansas who rejected integrationism in that state. And so like he used this, my mentor, Frank Williams, used the history and politics of jazz music as a way to teach students and kind of help us learn about music and kind of negotiate different things in our lives. And so, you know, he was also, this mentor was also like of Afro-Indigenous descent, and he would kind of talk to us about Native American and African-American communities in Florida and uh, the kind of, you know, like communal struggles between African-Americans and Native Americans in, in, this, in the Southeast. And so that was a, also a part of like this early education. And then he was also somebody who introduced us to Afro-Cuban jazz. So I'm in high school, I was like, you know, listening to Chico Valdez, this pianist, and we were, you know, doing workshops and stuff with Gumbi Artis, who was a, a really, really great Afro-Cuban percussionist and kind of learning about history and rhythm and that kind of thing. So jazz really resonated with me. And it was actually the only reason that I ended up going to university. And so I received scholarship money to go to college and I auditioned and I got into a music program. And it was only one university that I even applied to. 
And I went there for jazz, alto sax and composition. And then when I got there, I kind of just like stepped out of it. And, you know, I said, you know what, I'm just going to take a bunch of classes. So I took like electives like African-American music history. And I also ended up taking a philosophy course. And so like the thing that I think really resonated with me was that there was this kind of analogous relationship between like jazz music as a history of ideas. So if you think like someone like Charlie Parker in the bebop era was like this precursor and influence on people like Cannonball Adderley in the hard bop era. And so like, this was something that I was really interested in in high school and kind of thinking about these kind of subtle shifts between genres. And to me, that really kind of like showed up in an interesting way through philosophy. And so like, I started thinking about, you know, I took a philosophy course, like things like justice or truth or like metaphysics of race, like that there was like this kind of similar set of historiographical twists and turns. Like it would be like subtle changes made to the meaning of experience or subtle changes made to the meaning uh, or the kind of context for another set of ideas. And that kind of placing together these confluence of historical and material changes and the, the ways in which the ideas showed up was like really enlivening for me. And so I think that was like really the thing that brought me to philosophy was like thinking of like a history of ideas kind of approach. And I think like that's still like the stuff I work on today is kind of still indebted to that like understanding of, of relationships between different ways of like playing on each other's ideas and kind of extending or, you know, critiquing and those kinds of movements, which I think have these really interesting connections to, to genre and to the ways that we understand, I guess, maybe practices of interpretation more generally. That's fascinating. So I think the word neoliberalism is being used quite loosely these days until it's starting to become unclear about what we mean by it. So tell me, what is neoliberalism or neoliberalisms on your view? So I think that's a great question. It's an important question. And I think maybe a few of the things that kind of get generally referred to when people use the term neoliberalism are these kind of maybe two things. So one would be like a kind of set of economic policies, and the other might be a kind of broader political view that people consider neoliberal in character. And I think those the, the meanings between the two are related, but yeah, and it also depends on the context and who's saying it and when and those kinds of things too. But, but, but generally, the first, I think neoliberalism is a term that's been used by political theorists and economists a lot uh, to refer to uh, economic policies stemming from around the 1970s and onward that, that tend to share the view that nation states should try to prevent interfering with or impeding market relations. And so, for example, um, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank um, offered a series of guidelines for loans for a lot of Latin American countries in the 1980s that sought things like deregulating trade, promoting foreign direct investment, privatizing natural resources, and removing these other kinds of impediments that might impact market relations. And so like one, a specific example would be something like in Bolivia in the 1980s, a party called the Revolutionary Nationalist Movement really implemented some policies that privatized the tin mines in Bolivia. And that effectively led to the loss of employment for like thousands of miners who were working in these mines. And so the government also sought around the same time to deregulate labor laws, which effectively weakened the, the unions there. And so you know, there's a, there's a kind of general set of policies in, in that sense that was that was enacted. There's also stuff like what's called the Washington Consensus from 1989, which is like a kind of shorthand for the economic policies recommended by these major lenders like the IMF and the World Bank. And they're usually um, about monetary flows from the global, global north to nation states in the global south that were kind of deemed developing nations that needed these kinds of loans. And so, I mean, in the context of the U.S., neoliberalism is like these kinds of policies are also associated with like fiscal and social reforms of some 
someone like Ronald Reagan. So including, for example, the firing of like 11,000 plus air traffic controllers during the early 1980s when they were on strike. And so that was a pretty big blow to trade unions at the time. And then also, I think it's, it's also associated with someone like Margaret Thatcher as well. So, so that's like the, the, the economic sense. And then there's also, I think, a more, uh, there's a kind of political or sense that people tend to use it as well, which is kind of referring more generally to like individualizing, privatizing. And as uh, Isabel Altamirano Jimenez states in her recent book, Nis Encounters with Neoliberalism, a kind of commodification of nature. And so they tend, it tends to be a reference about those kinds of things as well. And so like neoliberal policies might operate to dissuade or prevent employees from joining or forming unions, or they might support the privatization of like previously state-run social goods, so like education, healthcare, water sources, gas. So for example, gas services, the privatization of gas means that gas is something that you'll pay for individually from a private company and not something that your community, your state collectively owns and, and endeavors to protect, sustain, or distribute. So yeah. So, and then there's also maybe this like kind of broader third sense, which is, or it's related to the first two for sure. I mean, I think they're all related, but a sense in which like the wealth and power of a nation state benefits from neoliberal po- benefits from these types of policies. So these could include like, you know, trying like the use of military force or economic sanctions to preserve the financial interests or the corporate interests of a given nation state. So if you think about like um, military force at Standing Rock or the military deaths of Lenka activists that were done in Honduras against this the kind of military deaths that were caused in response to the Aguasarca Dam. Like these are also cases in which people tend to refer to like the military's implications in the preservation of private corporate interests. And then there's also like a broader, there's another sense in which like we could talk about private industries and contracts that support state surveillance and national security measures, which can also be, you know, a way to talk about the, the nation state's role in, in preserving individualized and privatized investments. So like that's kind of the general take. And so, and I think maybe what's neo or new about these policies is that they kind of maybe apply some basic liberal tenets of freedom, individualism, and state power with policies and trends that focus on private, often corporate, global capitalist uh, economic relations. So I think that's kind of tends to be, at least from what I've gathered from the folks um, that I'm kind of reading and working on, that that tends to be where some people kind of put the emphasis. So it seems that the, the term is not just descriptive, but it seems that it's value-laden. At least that's what I've heard people use it in the context of. And what I mean by that, like a value-laden term, and I wonder what you think about this, that is to say that even employing the word itself is, is either employing it as a negative term or a positive term or positive project. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess like when, when I first thought about whether it's value-laden, I think, you know, I was thinking, I was like, well, I'm a little bit interested in that question because I'm not sure, I'm not sure about what's not value-laden. So I'm kind of kind of committed to it. <laughs> <laughs> to a view like, yeah, right. So I'm like committed to this kind of maybe a broader epistemological or philosophy of language view about meaning itself and about the even that our best objectivist efforts are going to be value-laden. So, you know, I guess I take it to be like neoliberalism is value-laden, but so too is everything else. So, but I think what you're asking with this, I think the way that you just framed it here is like, is it a kind of pejorative term? Is it been used to critique and that kind of thing? And I'd say, yeah, I think probably similar to how the term capitalism in a Marxist context has been used as a, in a kind of critical sense. So, you know, you don't often see industries describing themselves as cap- capitalists. And I think in a way that neoliberalism has 
operated along those terms as well. And so like, I think as a political idea, I think there's a pretty fairly robust um, kind of set of debates about the relationship between, say, like the classical liberalism of John Locke or Adam Smith and like what these neoliberal economists like Friedrich Hayek or Milton Friedman have done. And so like, I think, again, like maybe some common threads would be something like an emphasis on the relationship between the individual, the state and freedom. And so I kind of take that to be like something that's like people are debating about how neoliberalism and liberalism, if they are connected, how they are connected and all that. And then like just one, you know, maybe cool source for your listeners, I think is David Harvey's book is like a brief history of neoliberalism. It's got, you know, a really great overview of some of these, these same, same concepts and ideas. How are indigenous peoples uniquely affected by neoliberalism? So I think that's a really important question. And I think a number of indigenous scholars and activists have long pointed out that the effects of um, economic policies and specifically neoliberal economic policies are often particularly violent um, against indigenous peoples. And so I think the impact of neoliberal policies on indigenous peoples follows what a lot of folks refer to as a kind of settler colonial logic. And this is like in the case in which like a colonizing nation state considers itself more capable than indigenous communities to determine maybe the importance or value and use of, say, traditional territories, waterways, forests, or other natural resources. And so, and, and when I use the phrase settler colonialism, it's important to note that, like, as Patrick Wolf has written on this, that settler colonialism is a structure and not an event. So, you know, the expropriation of native land is, as you know, say, through, through these kinds of economic policies, is, is an ongoing organizing principle of the structure of settler colonialism. So it's not just something that, it's not something that happened, but it is an ongoing organizing structure. And so, you know, in this sense, like Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang have a, have a great piece, Decolonization is Not a metaphor. And they basically say that, like, you know, according to settler colonial logics, like land is the most valuable commodity to preserve. And so in this sense, like, you know, because settlers make indigenous land, this is their their, their concept. Indigenous land is their new home and source of capital. It's then this requires then the disruption of indigenous lifeways and cosmologies and relationships to place. And so, you know, uh, part of this also means so an example would be something like I mentioned Isabel Altamirano Jimenez's work, and she has some really thorough and great work on what she calls green neoliberalism. And she says that, you know, her, her work is kind of tracing that um, a kind of environmental stance that holds the view that like various animals, plant species and ecosystems would actually be better protected by treating them as commodities. So that's that's the view. That's the kind of neoliberal approach to saying that like indigenous communities. And, and in her case, she's looking at the Wantefec of, of Oaxaca that, you know, it's the, the belief that like protecting fish in uh, fisheries or the preserving the wind energy and given uh, territories is now better to, it's better to commodify these and have corporations use them and work over them than the indigenous communities to whom they're, you know, uh, in these relations of place. And so I think like her, she really, she has a great, very recent piece, actually a 2017 piece called The Sea is Our Bread. And it's in uh, the journal Marine Policy. And it's got a lot of kind of out outlines some of the ways in which Zapotec and Wave peoples have been basically treated as as kind of irresponsible, she says, like um, entrepreneurial petty producers who are unable to basically protect the, the lands in which they're fishing. And so um, she kind of uh, 
you know, discusses the ways in which there's like these private interests uh, that come in to, to basically seek to, to, to gain control of those lands and, and to use them. So, and then another example would be like uh, Rebecca Sosi has a, a really great piece in the new Routledge Handbook on Epistemic Injustice. And she has this case from the 1980s, Ling v. Northwest Indian Cemetery Protective Association. She describes basically the, she uses this description of like a, um, a hermeneutical injustice. So an injustice against like the intelligibility of indigenous lifeways in the uh, court systems in the U.S. But the example is basically of the federal government being allowed to extend a logging road through a sacred site that's um, impacted um, indigenous groups in Northern California because basically these indigenous peoples couldn't show that their their belief that something was sacred was prefaced upon it's not having a logging road in it. And so um, these kind of private interests in the timber industry really were weighed as more valuable and certainly more intelligible to that uh, than the cosmology and, and sacred beliefs that the these indigenous groups had. So, and then like more than and other contemporary examples, I think like the Bears Ear Monu- Bear Ears Monument in Utah, Dakota Access and Keystone Pipelines are also the kind of U.S. and uh, Canadian uh, settler colonial states using and implementing neoliberal policies. And I would recommend on this particular issue on like environmental philosophy and climate and indigenous um, philosophy, actually Kyle White's work, um, who, if you have an interview him already. And if your listeners don't know, has some really excellent work on a lot of these issues as well. So you, you note in your work that indigenous peoples are not passive in regards to neoliberalism. They've taken up projects to resist it. And you specifically know indigenous communities in Bolivia and Mexico that have done so. And the two groups that you highlight are women, that's Mujeres Carando, and the women of EZLN. Tell us more about their work, their strategies, and also their successes. So for the piece that you read, um, it's actually, this is a, a chapter from a forthcoming volume by Jacoby Carter, who sends his regards, by the way, to you, <laughs> and Hernando Estevez. And uh, their book is called Philosophizing Across the Americas. And they invited the contributors to kind of bring different themes across the Western Hemisphere together. And uh, just for some context here, I had already been doing some work on the Bolivian group you mentioned, Mujeres Creando, which is uh, Spanish for women creating. And I had been doing some work on them when I was approached for the chapter. And so a lot of my other work in Latin American philosophy focuses on Mexican social political thought. So I kind of wanted to bring these two, like kind of these two bodies of work that I've been been doing into conversation and think about um, in this context, indigenous resistance to neoliberalism. So I should also say that as a non-indigenous person and as someone who is a descendant of both white settler and Central American mestizo migrants, that I take it to be important for me to focus specifically on the work of indigenous identified scholars for the kind of work that I'm doing. And particularly in this project, I was really drawing from the work of um, Chickasaw scholar Shannon Speed and the Aymaran scholar. Sylvia Rivera Cusicanqui. And so that was kind of some of the framing for some of this stuff. So, but back to your question. So what I take from this literature to be kind of like an interesting difference are the political relationships between indigenous peoples and the nation states in each context. So, so for example, the current Bolivian president since 2016, Evo Morales, is an Aymaran labor union organizer who developed his political base and platform from the fighting for the rights of like of coca leaf farmers. And so, uh, and actually many of those farmers who were part of the coca leaf, who became uh, part of this coca leaf industry um, had actually lost their jobs to when this mining industry went privatized. And so there's also this interesting kind of movement from the mining industry into coca leaf farming. And coca leaves are also known to be a sacred plant used by indigenous communities across the Andes. And also the coca leaf is 
a constituent of or a part of the what the drug cocaine. And so it's also part of the U.S.'s kind of crackdown on the war on drugs, which has also effectively uh, had a pretty big impact on uh, a lot of Andean communities who rely on the coca leaf as not just an industry, but also part of their uh, life world. So anyway, so I mentioned the shrinking of unions as part of the impact of neoliberalism and Morales and the Movimiento al Socialismo, the movement to socialism, which was a political party that he joined and now leads, directly contested those kinds of neoliberal trends within Bolivia. And so the Bolivian government is actually currently directed by an indigenous and socialist leadership, and their stated aims are to work against colonialism, neoliberalism, and interventionism. So that's that that you know national context. So while the outcome of I think indigenous organizing efforts um, led to this renewed political life in Bolivia during the 2000s, indigenous communities in Mexico um, continued to struggle struggle under a set of policies enacted under um, the North American Free Trade Act and other reforms of the 90s and 2000s. So for example, in 1991, the then president. Carlos Salinas de Cotari effectively ended all forms of land redistribution to indigenous communities. And, and that was a huge blow to the indigenous communities who held significant claims against the state. And so part of this meant that, like, you know, there was this detrimental impact from NAFTA. There was this decision to no longer respect and to respond to land uh, redistribution claims. So that led to some organizing efforts. But then also there was a, the 2000 president, Vicente Fox, also, you know, refused to honor the self-governance rights that were agreed to during a series of accords in the, 19, the mid-1990s. And so this was also like a huge failure by the Mexican government to affirm the policies that they had agreed to that would impact indigenous and uh, peasant peoples in Mexico. And so this was happening in the 90s. And so part of part of the formation of the group you mentioned, the Zapatistas, was then in response to this. And so, and this eventually led for them um, kind of indigenous rights movements, that movement that moved to the region of Chiapas, Mexico, and uh, led to the declaration of the region as an autonomous region. And against the state's wishes, basically, the Zapatistas began to develop, develop their own healthcare, educational and ag- agricultural systems. And so that was, you know, and in terms of state presence, those are very different kinds of outcomes in the in the 90s and 2000s. So anyways, and so then thinking then with respect to women in those two movements, in the paper, I wanted to highlight how given those two different contexts, you have these different negotiations for indigenous women with respect to these different structures. And so in the context of Bolivia, the group uh, Mujeres Creando, who they, they call themselves anarcho-feminists, despite the work of the, they, I mean, they're, they're responding despite the work of the, um, the Movimiento al Socialismo and Morales, they effectively argue that a lot of work remains to be done for indigenous women in the country. And I think one really poignant piece that I used for the other uh, chapter that you read was um, an essay written by Maria Galindo that's called If Evo Had Been Born a Woman. So if Evo Morales had been born a woman. And um, Galindo basically writes, like she responds to this really seemingly heroic narrative about Morales uh, in the coca leaf industry and his organizing and his rise of power, that, that things would have been quite different if he had been Eva Morales, an indigenous peasant woman. And, he's, and, and, and Galindo's point here is that like her opportunities would still remain quite limited under their the current state policies in Bolivia. And so she says things like, she writes that like Eva wouldn't have been able to marry outside of her community. Or if she did decide to migrate her, she would be viewed as having turned her back on her community. Or if she, you know, kind of left domestic life to go work in the city, she most likely would have been confronted with a traumatic experience of rape or sexual harassment. She kind of traces the story of Eva Morales and, ta- and you know, reframes it through this narrative of Eva Morales and what, what the conditions would have been 
and like for her to make those those similar moves. And so she does say, though, too, that, uh, you know, had she been able to become president, that she says, like, don't doubt for a minute that she would decriminalize abortion, condemn rape within the party and require that each and every member of the Movimiento al Socialismo provide financial compensation to the families caring for their children that they've abandoned along the way. And then she says, quote, Eva would understand each and every one of the dreams of Bolivian women. And so I feel like this is a, a call actually for Mujeres Creando and for Galindo in the essay. It's a call for what, what people call like a depatriarchalization as part of decolonization. So despite the state's effort, you know, in appointed efforts to decolonize and to resist neoliberalism, there's also these other really important facets of, of the ways in which the state has framed the, the possibilities for indigenous women. So that's in the Bolivian context. And then Regarding the Zapatistas, I think there's an interesting shift in recent Mexican politics. So for some time, the Zapatistas were choosing not to participate in state politics, and they had severed, t- severed ties and fought against the state government. But more recently, and in fact, just this year, the Zapatistas announced that they now will have an indigenous woman candidate running in the 2018 presidential election. So Marichui Patricio is a Nahua medical healer who was designated by the National Indigenous Congress to serve as their candidate. So this is an interesting shift. Yeah, yeah. So, but then like one thing too that the Zapatistas I think have really done is foreground Indigenous women in their organizing. And so, and part of that is through the kind of representational politics of Indigenous women. And so there was this really key moment um, in March 2001 where they, they had a, a woman named Comandante Esther kind of take the central platform in the Mexican Congress. And she has this speech where she says, like, basically, she knows that, you know, her presence as an indigenous woman in front of the Mexican Congress will have this interesting effect of not making anyone feel attacked or humiliated or degraded, or that she knows that some people might choose not to listen to her, or they might refuse to speak to her because, you know, it will be her, you know, that's who that's the one that they're now having to address. But she says, you know, like that, that the Zapatistas are aware that that she is placed there as an indigenous woman, as a as a representative and as a as a speaker and an authority on indigenous uh, politics and demands made to the state. And so I think that that's a that's a really interesting kind of like moment in which um, the Zapatistas kind of used a political platform to kind of highlight indigenous women as the voice for self-governance rights within their organizing. I thought that was that's a I mean, a lot and a lot of people write about that as like this really pivotal moment. Like I mentioned, Shannon Speed has a lot of work on that. So in any case, that I think that's another kind of interesting difference between the ways in which we see like these, both the political situations differing and also the kind of tactics that these different groups are using to highlight indigenous women. So we see the clear examples of indigenous forms of resistance. You, you kind of mentioned in that same paper that at times or there is a possibility to exoticize or romanticize these forms of resistance. And, you know, when I read it, I was, I was wondering how what might this look like? How is it problematic and, and how can we resist it? And so I throw those questions back at you. Yeah, I think like one thing that I tried to highlight in the paper and that I think is important is that like both Comandante Esther and Maria Galindo of Mujeres Creando are like pretty clear and adamant that like one thing that they don't support and that I underscore in the paper is that that we wouldn't want to think about indigenous cultures as like static or inherently sexist or uh, any notion like that. So like the kind of pitting of gender and sexual um, liberation against uh, non-Anglo or European cultures would be a kind of false dichotomy. And I think like Shannon Speed writes about this as like a kind of multiculturalism that like makes people have to choose between, you know, a kind of cultural identity or a gender identity. So I think like 
in some ways to say romanticize indigenous resistance might also require like, you know, overlooking the claims that say women within those communities are making in response to their communities. And so I think like that we wouldn't we wouldn't want to kind of have that like very dichotomous read. Um, but also, I think, you know, um, some of my my thinking on this was about like resisting that, like to resist exoticizing or romanticizing indigenous resistance. I think like we as many of us are settlers, immigrants or descendants of people forcefully brought to this land. That like, you know, it's not just learning and listening, but also I think like what Mariana Ortega calls in her paper on being lovingly, knowingly, knowingly ignorant, a kind of a prescription to like check and question whether the things that we're uh, uh, analyzing um, actually respond to the communities that we're engaged with. And so, you know, um, you know, I, I did email Mujeres Creando and was corresponding with them in the in the construction of this paper. And that was part of me thinking about how I can be responsive to these communities. I also was, you know, part of my engagement with the Caribbean Philosophical Association has been really great because it kind of puts, you know, as a conference, it really kind of puts you in conversation with folks from a lot of different uh, philosophical and geopolitical sites to kind of move some of this work. And so, you know, I had a really great opportunity at an early presentation of this paper to to talk with a, a scholar, Catherine Walsh, who works on, with uh, Afro-Ecuadorian communities and, and kind of get her take on some of what how this resonated with her and, and that kind of thing. And that was a really fruitful kind of dialogue. So in any case, I think so that's that's some things that I was doing. But then also thinking about more generally about like um romanticization. I think there's some really interesting insights in the Tuck and Yang piece, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, where they 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 highlight actually this phrase by Janet Mawinney about um, settler colonial um, efforts to move to innocence, to trying to kind of like, like purify or uh, cleanse one's own complicitness with settler colonial violence. And so, so for example, like they, they state things like, you know, when people claim some kind of small percentage of native identity to, to kind of take a, some authenticity or or, you know, something like that, or like, or the, or the phrase, like, we're all colonized as oppressed or marginalized people, that this then, I think, erases the specific responsibilities to, say, um, issues like land redistribution or other complicities with settler colonial logics. And so, like, they really, they have a really great set of um, ways in which they try to, like, talk through what they, what folks call a native settler slave triad, which actually upholds settler colonialism, and then relies on the, both the elimination of native peoples and the exploitation of black and brown labor. And so like trying to, to show that like you don't just use the phrase, but you're actually trying to remain attentive to how your concrete practices are then uh, maintaining or um, upsetting settler colonial law. So I think that their, their work is really helpful on, on those points as well. And this question may be, you know, just pointing to what you just said and what you alluded to earlier. Just wondering, I, I know you were talking about, you know, kind of check and challenges, but what are, what are some lessons to learn from understanding the struggle of indigenous communities in the global south? So to frame some of the discussion, I want to emphasize that, like, a lot of these things are not particularly original to my reading or my contribution on this part. So I, and I think what I'm what I say here and what I say in the paper are really kind of a a broader discourse about decolonizing um, colonialism and uh, decolonizing settler colonial logics. And so um, at a general level, I think it's important to note that the struggles of indigenous communities can't be reduced to like their effectiveness for the ends of academics. And so you know, I think often we, you know, seek to extend our influence and representational capacities. And sometimes those are extended institutional networks might still remain insufficient for challenging and may be complicit with the policies and economic trajectories of neoliberalism. And so 
I think the goals of decolonial praxis through scholarship should also like, uh, you know, seek non-academic forms of engagement and dialogue. And so like some questions for scholars and listeners thinking about resisting settler colonial logic is like, you know, what beyond academic work are you doing to support the self-determination or to use Anishinaabe scholar Gerald Visner's term, the kind of collective survivance of indigenous people. So like, where do you spend your money? Where and for whom have you put your body on the line? You know, with whom do you seek to learn from or do you seek, you know, with whom do you seek critical engagement or guidance or comfort? I think these are all kind of important ways of thinking about what our maybe academic writing isn't necessarily doing on its own. And so I think another important way to frame some of the issues that um, we've been discussing is through ways to, say, resist or replace or dismantle what some folks call the modern colonial nation state. And so this is basically, as folks like Kwame Namako or Sylvia Winter have called, like this kind of Westphalian model for the nation state, which stems from the 1648 Treaty of Westphalia, which is a kind of mutual recognition for the territorial sovereignty among European states. And so basically all other peoples are kind of left outside of those agreements. And so like against this, uh, for example, uh, Chickasaw scholar Jody Bird has offered a model of Chickasaw sovereignty, which she says isn't founded on territorial claims over property, but rather in diplomacy, disagreement, relationships, intimacy, and kinship. And so the association here is also about like building models for solidarity and coalition that work across the imposed boundaries of settler colonial nation states. So in the paper that you read, one example I think is really interesting from Evo Morales, who basically, uh, he cites the Idle No More movement, the first Nations and Native American movement of 2012 as a kind of a transnational movement. And then also we could think about like how the Zapatistas have had a worldwide movement as well. But then like kind of tying this back to questions about exoticization and romanticization, I think keeping some specificity about what decolonial theorists refer to as colonial difference is also important. And so like for me, that really has shown up specifically in like doing work on U.S. Latinx feminist philosophy and feminist work. And so like I start, I, I did a, a quite a bit of work on uh, Latina feminist conceptions of mestizaje and also uh, state-sponsored forms of mestizaje in Mexico. And so like the if the question is, is about how different sites of authority and uh, recognition and uh, material situation can then have an impact on people's agency or actions or their interp- interpretations of their actions. Like for me, it was like Gloriane Saldua, I think, has been rightly criticized to some extent for using and potentially exoticizing indigenous imagery and, and stories in her work, but also Ansaldua and the collective of women of color that she was working with and writing with had never had the equivalent status as, say, access to political, financial, and material resources as someone like the Mexican president, um, Lázaro Cárdenas of the 1930s, who implemented an assimilationist mes- like educational policies based on mestizaje in Mexico. And so some of my other work, I have a, a paper on the relationship between Mexican mestizaje and Ansaldua's notion of mestiza consciousness. But I think you know, there are some really significant differences in how both of these discourses of mestizaje are operating in these really different contexts. Now, for some who have no idea what that term is, give us a definition of that. Oh, of mestizaje. Yes. Okay, so it's like, a, I guess, generally to kind of make sense of the, the, both those uses of it, it's a, it's a phrase about cultural, racial mixture. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's been an, a very strong nationalist program, as I mentioned, in not only Mexico, but other sites in Latin America and the Caribbean. But also, you know, it's been uh, reappropriated by a number of, um, say, U.S. Latinx scholars who 
are theorizing multiplicity or difference or sexuality and embodiment and things that are about living between sites of conflict and being pulled in multiple directions and, and having a kind of, you know, a life that's that's defined by that and, and kind of figuring out how one exists in as a multiplicitous being or exists as somebody who is, you know, dealing with sites of mixture. So why is working Latinx philosophy important? So I have personal interests in like migration histories and re resistance movements across the Americas. And uh, I think that those include networks for struggle coming from Latin American descended peoples in the U.S. And so Chicanx and Latinx resistance movements, I think, are really exciting, specifically for things like colonialism or state formation and state violence, migration and the meaning of migration. And then also, as I was just mentioning a minute ago, like what um, Mariana Ortega calls multiplicitous identities, which I think, you know, are, is, is a way of framing identity as kind of being constituted by living at these differing sites of meaning and, and interpretation. But I also don't consider U.S. Latinx philosophy inherently separate from other narratives of struggle as a, as a like kind of valuable thing to study. And I think like my interest in Latin American studies and resistance movements within Latin America also stem from a kind of shared interest and commitment to anti-imperialist and anti-sexist writings and, and also Black, Indigenous and Arab solidarity across Latin America, which I also think is really interesting. So I've been doing some recent work on Arab migrations to Central America and then some of the impact that's, that some of the, the people who ended up at a major university in Mexico were doing. So actually myself and another colleague, Stephanie Rivera, um, have been doing some work on a, like, well, I guess mid-20th century uh, feminist philosopher in Mexico, Vera Yamuni. And so Stephanie and I have been reading a lot of her work and kind of trying to, to kind of frame more about um, Arab migration in Latin America as part of a way of doing Latin American philosophy. What is your writing routine like? So I think I, I tend to work really well on accountability to other people. So I like collaborating with other people and I think having other people rely on me really, it calls to me, it really matters to me. And so I think I tend to write best and I think maybe most creatively when I know that I'll be like talking about that, talking to someone else about that piece or I'll be um, engaging with someone else about that. And so like having a date and like sending it off and that kind of thing actually gives me an invitation to, to kind of talk to more folks and, and that kind of thing. So I do like that. So that's like part of my routine is setting those, the, those deadlines and that kind of thing. But like, I think day to day, like I mostly write with like a pile of books around me. And, and like, you know, I think at just like my method is like to just kind of have a lot of materials around me. And so it kind of, even if I hit a block, like I can just pick either pick up something that I haven't read in a long time or pick up something new. And I think it like puts me in a mode to kind of get back to, you know, whatever it is that task is. And so like, <laughs> what writing advice would you give to others? The one thing that someone, you know, if they're going to decide either to be a creative writer or they're going to decide to go into academia and really do research, what is that one writing advice that you think is essential for them? Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess like just learning more about like what materials, settings, people or time that you require. Like, I think it really depends on like, because like sometimes where you write really you know, matters. And so like, if you can write well in an, in an office, do that. If you write best in a, a bustling like space with a lot of people, you know, like do that. I mean, like, cause you have to know like what it is that makes you focused. And so, or what gives you the, the kind of like ability to express yourself through the written word. And so like figuring out like, is it being around certain people that like, you know, are going to hold you accountable or is it being around people that, you know, affirm you in a certain way. And that really helps you feel like, you know, you can kind of put the other stuff to the side and, and start writing. So I feel like, 
like it's it's going to vary really. And I but I think like my best advice is just like learn what those things are and like and trust that you know them. <laughs> you know, like those are those are the things. If you weren't a philosopher, what do you think you would be? I was thinking like I had a really close moment in grad school where I was going to apply to Latin American history programs. And so but that's in the academic setting. But like both my parents were actually worked for newspapers to varying degrees. And also my abuelo, my mom's side, my grandfather, my mom's side was a linotypist and also worked for has this interesting connection to not just newspapers in Central America and El Salvador, and Panama, but also like the kind of state censorship of newspapers. And so and so he so anyway, so there's like this kind of newspaper industry and journalism industry in my in my family. And so like and I also like maybe this is thinking back to the music stuff. Like, I mean, I love audio media as like a way of gathering information or through for storytelling and, and that kind of thing. And so like maybe maybe something like journalism or something like that. So you, no matter what, you still would have been a writer or a transmitter of knowledge in some sense. Maybe so. Maybe so. I don't know. Maybe so. <laughs> well, Andrea, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I did too. Thank you. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.